Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today I'm talking to Rob Fitzpatrick, author of The Mom Test and Write Useful Books. Rob is truly a serial embedded entrepreneur. He's building resources and tools for writers and product managers by involving himself in their communities. So we'll talk about accountability, building trust, and how to build something that both creates wealth and lets you express your passion. Here's Rob. How's it going? How's how's life? Oh, I'm well. Uh, we're, we've got our first baby due in a Ooh. couple of months, so that's that's wow. fun. Uh, and yeah, apart from that, um, the, the the business is like default growing, you know, slowly. But it's nice if something's default growing instead of default dying. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, much better. You know, and then apart from that, I don't know, just too many books to write, too many things I'm interested in. You know, just strapped for time, but in a good way. It's mostly going. It's just there's too much stuff I'm interested in right now, and not enough time to pull pull on everything properly. Has that ever been different for you? Have you ever not been interested in many many things at the same time? No, but but normally, like, if there's no other stakeholders, I find it easier to be like, okay, I'm doing this thing, you know, or or there's one that's a clear top priority, and then everything else is a hobby that fills in the gaps. And now there's like, the book is a clear priority, like family is a clear priority, like the business is a clear priority. It's like, oh, no, like, I can't drop any of those. You know, or I can, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably not a good idea to even consider dropping your family for you know, like simplifying <laughs> your life. Probably not the best way to approach this. No, right. that's a, a short, a short-term optimization, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's like a timeout. That's what they call it, right? Like sleeping on the couch. <laughs> that's your short-term optimization. But yeah, uh, th this kind of prioritization is always a problem. I see that too. I see that in my own work too. Like, the, I want to write, and I want to spend time thinking about what I want to write. But I also want to do the podcast, obviously, and I want to have a family mm -hmm. life, and I want to be able to be there for the dog because she's a puppy and she <laughs> needs me too. Like, there's there's all these little things that are super hard to juggle, particularly if you'd go at it alone. But you're not alone right now, right? For most of your things, you do have people who help you. Is that right? It, it's true, yeah. So with the main business, well, there's five of us, like three partners and two, I guess, employees, but it doesn't, doesn't we're on a team of five, everyone kind of feels like a partner. Uh, and then, so that's the main business, which in theory we do, that's the useful book stuff, which in theory is a 20, 20 hour a week thing, is the way we always intended that. Um, and then like Teresa and I, like my, you know, my partner, uh, whatever, uh, future co-parent, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, whatever the, uh, the, like we, we work together on kind of the personal business, which is like, you know, books, the new stuff I'm doing around community, um, all of that. I, I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. There's always people and there's bits and pieces that kick, kick talk to freelancers, but I, I'm just so bad at delegation. Like I find that I work really well with people who are just so much better than me at the thing. That the, they they are just like Rob, stop worrying. You know, I'm gonna take care of it. And I go, yeah, that's perfect. And but when it, when someone expects me to like to coach or train or, or provide kind of this this ongoing managerial support, I'm, I I don't know. It, it it doesn't put me in my happy place, and I don't think they enjoy it either. So it's I'm, I'm trying to find like partners or find ways to do it by myself. Yeah. What what is your happy place? What could you do forever? <laughs> I mean. I ran the thought experiment years ago, and it's one of the reasons I ended up doing what I'm doing, where I'm like, what would I do if I was retired? And I wasn't, like, rich enough to, like, go nuts, but, you know, I didn't have to worry about paying the bills. And I was like, well, I'd probably spend the morning reading, writing, and thinking. 
then go have a nice lunch and then hang out with friends, have some beers, play some board games, like chat, you know, relax, take it easy, go for a stroll. And I was like, oh, like, I don't need to wait till I'm retired. I can pretty much do that now. <laughs> it got a little overcomplicated because I, I, I fell for the ambition bug again and decided to try to make it slightly different or a slightly bigger business, which is the, the useful books thing. Um, but, eh, you know, that's OK. So right now it's more there's a bit more work than I intended and a bit more stress than I would have ideally chosen. But it's also all for good reasons, you know, and, and I, I went into it eyes wide open and I'm, I'm happy with the choices for now. Okay, what what are the challenges with useful books? Because I I find that that product in particular that is such a result of all the things you've been doing up till now. Kind of you know, like it it has this kind of yeah. You you wrote your own books. You figured out what you need you know, in terms of like beta readers and stuff, and you're building a community around that particular thing. And the soft as a service tool, obviously, you have a lot of things on your mind. But what what are the challenging parts in building this? software tool which is probably one of the the first like standalone software tools you've ever built right is that right well i've done a few different uh like my first company the one that went through my combinator was was all pure software um and we started being marketing-led consumer-driven and then we pivoted into enterprise sales-driven it's <laughs> still a similar product but totally different business model um and then i've done a few others kind of for myself these little like indie hacker throwaway things um some made money most didn't but you know they were fun i i, I tended to choose them for learning But yeah, this is the first time in a while I've done it with a team and tried to, you know, commit a decade to it and, and make it a bit bigger. Uh, it is so the business model, just for, for, for context, is we've got a book, which is like the education, like this is the process. This is the manifesto, the think piece, planting a flag, which is write useful books that leads into a community, like an accountability community, a community of practice, an outcome oriented community, whatever you want to call it where it's like, hey, we're here to help you implement the ideas from the book. And then along that journey, there's a particular sticking point, which is the beta reading where we're like, okay, there's not a good tool here. So we'll build the software. Um, so it's basically the book leads into the community, which leads into the software. And you can draw the arrow either way. Like you can say like, okay, we had this idea for the software, but it's got a real problem with retention and audience awareness. So you can extend the retention because beta reading only lasts like three months or six months. And you go, okay, that's a hard, it's hard. And people only do like one book. I mean, you're a bit different. You're, you're going from book to book, but like most, a lot of nonfiction authors do one book and they're like, this is my book. So we're like, okay, we've got zero retention and it only lasts like three or six months. And that's a feature. So you go, okay, well, the community expands that window because now we can catch people earlier in their writing process and we can keep them through seed marketing. And then you go, okay, but how do they know this matters? And then you go, okay, it's the book. So you can draw the arrow from the software backwards or from the book forwards. Um, and eventually we'd like to tack a publishing business onto the end of it where we're publishing our best community members based on the performance of their manuscripts during beta reading, um, which is kind of, I guess, what YC did with Hacker News, where they're like, okay, we've got this cool community of people. We've got this deal flow. Let's like, and again, like which way does the arrow point? Um, so the challenge, I guess, <laughs> is that... It is a good bootstrapped business, but the reason it's a good bootstrap business is because it's a terrible business, uh, at least the software. For the reason that the market is small, the customer dynamics, as I just explained, are really difficult to market to. Like we have, we had to write a book. It's like marketing. And I, I like, I can't think of another way we could have accomplished that goal, right? Because it requires huge education. Like Steve Blank, the dude who invented customer development, he used to say, you know, Some businesses need to educate your customers. If you need to do that, add five years to your plans because mm -hmm. it takes a while to educate a market. And we're like, okay. Uh, and then the community is like a lot of overhead to run that. But once it's running, um, 
it's incredible. Like, cause like the, for, for marketing led businesses, having a customer community is such an incredible customer superpower. Cause you're basically watching people struggle all day, like all day. They're like, I'm stuck on this. I don't know how to do this. This is blocking me. I'm scared of this. You're like, yes, it's the customer development dream. And there's zero bias because it's not in the context of an interview. Like, tell me what you think. It's like, you're just watching them work. Uh, so, but that all leads to the problem, <laughs> which is there's a lot of things. It's been slow to get to this point. We're currently at about 10,000 a month. We're like just barely profitable. You know, we, we pay people's salaries first. We dividend out a little bit each month. We always wanted this to be a business where we dividended every month. So we're not trying to like, you know, we, we, we want it to be product led growth. So we're not trying to spend our profits on growth. We're trying to like take the profits, right? We're at that stage in our career um, and like build a good product at our own pace that can grow itself. But it's been slow. Like if you include the writing of the book, we've been at this three years <laughs> and three years is a long time to only be at 10,000 a month. Uh, but the bright side of that is that because the table stakes are so high and because the market is relatively small, we feel very insulated against competition because only a lunatic would do what we have done to, to, to get into such a small market. So we feel like pretty protected. And so now we're going to have a time pretty soon where 80% of the team is on either maternity or paternity leave. <laughs> and so we're, we're going to drop from five people to one person. Uh, and the whole company is basically going to go on to maintenance mode. Like we're going to continue to maintain everything. It's going to be fine for community members. Like everything's going to work. Uh, customer support will still run, but it's like a skeleton crew. And I don't feel scared about that at, at all. Cause it's like, no one can like swoop in and eat our lunch. Or at least if they do, I will be very surprised because <laughs> they'd have to really have something out for us, you know, cause it doesn't make rational sense for them to do it. So I'm like, Oh, this is actually great for what we wanted the business to do. So like, its strengths were also its challenges, if that makes sense. Yeah, the, it sounds like you have a moat in just being super complex, and in, in not not in terms of you know internal complexity, but in in terms of like structural complexity. Like the business you're running is a business that I don't think I've ever seen anywhere else, particularly not at this size, right? You, you have a, an info product based business, or at least one part of it is an info product. And then you have a community that is both run by the people who created the info product and other people. And then out of that community comes the, the need to use certain tooling, which you also provide the same by the same people. It, it feels like yeah. it's, this, it's not a one trick pony. Like that, that's the thing you, you give as advice to most founders, right? Focus on one thing and build it really well. <laughs> well, you've been doing a lot of things at the same time, all of them really well from the looks of it. I mean, 10, 10K a month is really not too shabby for, for any business. You know, most don't it's get a, there. It's a start. It's a start. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a start because I, I feel you, you have this kind of sustainability loop in there. Right? The, a community mm. attracts more people who then either buy the book or get into the software. The software itself, by virtue of being used by beta users, might attract more people into the community or into the book, <laughs> which, you know, it has this, this nice little flywheel internally built. Was that, was that a consideration from the beginning? Like, did you start with the flywheel in mind or a particular component? Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably know there, there's always some arbitrary spark, right? Where like a product pops into your head. And I found that sometimes it's a piece of a product where I'm like, ooh, that's an interesting business model dynamic or like, ooh, that's an interesting like product screen or whatever. There's some piece, right? And then sometimes I, I tend to write those down even when they're half-baked. I was like, and I just jot them down somewhere. But sometimes they pop into my head like fully formed and sometimes you come back and like two pieces fit together or you can like workshop a piece and figure out what goes around it. 
I've had stuff for attacking the publishing industry in my notebooks for, it's got to be 10 years, maybe more than 10 years. And I haven't because I understand and I respect moats. And the the moats of the publishing industry are pretty substantial. So I was like, okay, fine. I can make a good living as an author. Like I can play outside of their system as an independent, but it's like, I, I can't attack their moats head on. You know, it's just impossible. Um, and I especially looked at textbooks where the moats are even bigger. They've got these like sales teams, they go to the universities and there's kind of something going on, which is similar to how it used to be with buying IBM, where like no one gets fired for buying like a textbook from the proven textbook producers that the university has always used. Whereas if you're like, I'm going to buy textbooks from this guy, Rob, it's like suddenly you're like, whoa, like you're, you're, you're getting a performance review, you know, as a professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and anyway, so I've ha- it's been like in my head forever. Right. And I didn't. I'm kind of a believer that like a product that you start with a problem and then like the, you know, the, the product emerges, but like, I take that to even more of an extreme because I don't, I'm agnostic about the medium. So I had an idea where it's like, okay, most books fail. That sucks. They shouldn't like books. should. I'm like, okay, is that solved with a blog post? Is that solved with a mobile phone app? Is that solved is with a productized service? Is it solved with, a publishing business is assault with a SaaS business. And sometimes people go like, I had this idea. I'm not sure it's big enough to be a book. It's like, well, then make it a blog post. I'm not sure it's big enough to be a blog post. Make it a tweet. Like making a good tweet is like good, you know? And it's like, oh, but it doesn't fit in a tweet. All right, make it a blog post. No, it's bigger than that. All right, make it a book. It's like, yeah, but I need to follow people. Make it a community. Like, yeah, yeah but it needs to integrate with their email. Make it an app. Like, like you, 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 and I see a lot of founders. They're like, I want to do SaaS. And then they find an idea and they like wedge it into the shape yeah. of SaaS. But not every idea should be SaaS, right? Some, a lot of SaaS, I think this is a classic uh, new founder mistake I've seen, is you read a business book that has a process, then you go, oh, I should make SaaS that codifies this process from the book. But like the wonderful thing about writing up a process as a book is that people can customize it to their circumstances using the tools that they already use. When you codify it into SaaS, you remove that flexibility. Um, and so then they go, oh, everyone says they want it, but they don't use it. And it's like, yeah, because you, you've baked in a rigid workflow. Like that sort of process should be a book. It's like book native, right? Anyway, th- it's a long way to say that we didn't have a full grand plan, but we had a spark. And as I kind of pulled on that spark and I pulled on the threads, it's like, oh, this idea needs to be a book. It's like, oh, this book to work needs a community. Oh, this community to work needs tools. And that's just like, you know, I, I like I pulled on that thread and we did realize early on that to do it properly would take five years at least. And that if we weren't willing to carve out five years, we may as well not start. So we didn't know if it would succeed or fail. We still don't, but we knew that to give it a shot would require at least half a decade. So we, we kind of carved that out and committed it ahead of time. And the reason we were comfortable to do that is like, we like the niche. Like I like talking to authors. I like serving authors and hanging out with them. So I figured like worst case, I spent five years hanging out with people I like and respect and trying to help them out. So that kind of, um, I'm calling it in my head, the passion discount, which I think is an important like bootstrapping concept where if you were venture funded, you wouldn't want to spend like five years on a bad market. But if you can apply like a passion discount where you're like, actually, I would like to spend my time this way anyway, then the, the math starts to make a little bit more sense. Uh, I don't know. That was a long ramble, and I'm not sure I answered your question at all. It is complex. And to, one thing I'll say about the complexity is that 
I'm a big believer in playing to your strengths. And this business would have been suicide for me to attempt when I was starting out because there are a lot of moving pieces. And it, it's like, we do a little bit of everything. We do like consumer marketing. We do like product design. We do like B2B. Like I, I just set up um, Holloway. I really respect as a publisher. And it's like, we were just talking to them the other day and it's like about setting up some sort of agent model and before we're able to set up our own publishing business, can we pass promising author leads to them and get a commission as like an agent or coach or like, you know, author coach or whatever. And it's like, so there's like a B2B element also in the partnership side. There's like, there's all these different pieces. But part of my like advantage now is that because I have no attention span and I've bounced around between so many different business models and businesses and products over the past 15 years, I kind of know how everything works a little bit, right? So now I can piece it together in this weird humunculus. Uh, but yeah, it would have been tough if I was doing it as my first business because it would have been a lot of different things to learn. But, you know, play to your strengths. And yeah, if I can make that more of my moat, then <laughs> great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love I love the idea of like being being just curious about everything, kind of eventually integrating into some kind of knowledge that you can use and distribute amongst mm -hmm. all these different topics. But the, for most founders, the problem is mostly financials in the beginning, right? They they just don't have the the capital to spend five years chasing the niche. Yeah, they have to kind of get to revenue immediately. How was that for you? Like you said, you you wanted to set five years. In a way for you, you, you wanted to use the five years for this. Like, how, how did you finance this? How did you capitalize so, it? This is one of the reasons that we made it a 20 hour a week business from the beginning. And that applies to everyone on the team, including the employees. So when we hire people, they get a like full time salary, but it's 20 hours a week. So it's a full time salary for half time hours. Um, and we said that to ourselves as well. And the conversation there is like every strong value has, it has to cut both ways, right? It has an advantage and a cost. And the cost of this is that we work fewer hours per week, but it means we need to work more months. We need to stay in the game longer to get to a result. So we go, oh, it's taken us three years. Well, yeah, but part of the reason it's taken three years is because we're only putting in half time. And the benefit of half time is that we can use our other half time to support ourselves. Um, and so, for example, I use my other half time primarily to work on my books and I draw an income from my books. Uh, one of the partners, Devin, works half time as a venture capitalist, which is hilarious because, you know, his like day job is being a VC. And then he works on this like goofy bootstrap business with, <laughs> with like, some buddies in his, in his other time. Um, you know, Mark, start, when he started, he was taking a sabbatical. Um, and so his other half time was going to intensive woodworking training. He was doing 20 oh. hours a week in the woodworking workshop, nice. like training under a master craftsman. Uh, and then now he's, he's just finishing. He's actually taken a month off and he's in France doing like a full-time woodworking thing for a bit. And then when he comes off, his comes back from that, his other half time, he's going to do some freelance days to kind of fill in the gaps. And so because we were willing to put in more months, but fewer hours, like we weren't in as much of a rush to get to these profitability milestones. Now, that being said, we do pay, I think, $5,000 a month in salaries for you know freelancers, part-timers, employees, whatever. So we needed to get to the point where we weren't losing money there. But again, playing to your strengths, like I understand books pretty well. And so it does not feel risky to me to draw profit from a book. So what I did is we treated the book's royalty, the book's royalties as the seed financing for the business. So all of the book's royalties go back into the business and that gave us our early cash flow and our early profitability, 
which allowed us to hire these early employees to, you know, not have to worry. And we started getting just because of our team, we got um, a handful of pretty credible early investment offers from really good angels. And it was tempting, right? Because it's, it's always tempting. You go, ah, yeah, I don't have to draw into savings. And, but, but we knew we didn't want to do this as a funded business because we wanted the ability to stay in a small market that we felt passionate about um, and to do it slowly and properly. And so it was just important, like all this stuff combined, right? And this is why I say, like, people are going to hear this some and go like, ah, oh, well, this is useless, right? Because it only applies to, to Rob. But the, the, the bigger lesson is that I had it in my notebook for 10 years, right? Along with a hundred other ideas. And if I'd been in a rush to do it 10 years ago, I would have failed for sure. But because it was like simmering in my brain, right? And I had a, I had a hundred other ideas in there. And each year I would return to my list and I would rework them and throw some out that were no longer interesting or viable, add more in, look at new at my assets, my strengths, my weaknesses, like... You know, it meant that I, I was like always, I was able to find this thing that played to my unique, my unique strengths. And everyone can do that. You always have some side of connections, skills, competences, insights that other people don't have. I, I would assume. <laughs> I would certainly hope because, <laughs> you know, what makes us unique also gives us these unique opportunities. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor of the show. MicroAcquire is a free startup acquisition marketplace that connects founders with serious buyers to help get their online businesses sold quickly and easily. MicroAcquire has been sponsoring my podcast since the beginning, and I'm excited to share their plans to help more bootstrap founders succeed. Starting in 2023, they're rebranding to acquire.com to show the world that they can help startups of any size get acquired. Their mission is the same to help founders achieve life-changing outcomes and continue building game-changing tools that make acquisitions easy for all. With over 35,000 messages sent between buyers and sellers in any given month, if you're thinking about testing the acquisition waters, now is the time to join Acquire.com. I, I think you're right. And, and the fact that you had it in, in your books for your notebooks for 10 years, and always check back on it, right? I always took a look at it and is it time for it now? Like, do I have the capacity? Do I have the, you know, the financial situation? Do I have, is the opportunity ripe? I think that that is why when I look at the community, I, uh, and of which I'm hard, I think, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm there from time to time. Like, I don't, don't check in everything, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, I definitely get your emails with the cool events. I want to talk about that with you too. But, you know, when I look at the community, I see it growing and I see it being very active. And I think this is such a clear sign that there, there is something happening in this field, right? In the field of self-publishing mostly, like where people now have the capacity to actually make a meaningful amount of income or just create a meaningful, uh, quality of book that people actually read, maybe even get a printed copy of, that is rather new. And I think you're with KDP and Amazon and all these other the print on demand things that are coming up or have been coming up for a couple of years, this is the right time to encourage people to get started because it's just as easy as it's never been before. Right. And I, I kind of, yeah. What do, what do you think about like the timing aspect of this? Like, do you think that is one of the, the most important choices here? Or like, what do you think of timing? I mean, when I did, so my first book came out in 2013. This is the mom test. So that's what, eight, 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 nine, nine years ago. I don't know. Eight years ago, ages ago. The, yeah, <laughs> quick maths. <laughs> 
So like back then I, I used KDP, I used the self-publishing stuff, but there was still a big cloud over it. Like when I would talk to people, you know, it's like a dinner party or whatever. I'd meet a friend's mom. What do you do? Oh, I make books. Oh, who's your publisher? No, no, no. I self-published. And they would, they would get embarrassed for me. They would go like, oh, well, don't worry. I'm, I'm sure you'll make it. Just keep trying. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm like in the top percentile of most profitable authors in the world. Like, <laughs> and since then, I'm, it's like, it's gotten a lot better since then. And they're like, they're like, yeah, but you don't have a publisher. Like, don't you want one? I'm like, I don't. They're like, they're like, mm, okay. And then they would like leave. They like didn't believe me. They would leave the conversation. And so what's changed? It's not necessarily that the tooling and tech are better, although they are. Um, and it's not necessarily that the knowledge is more available, although it is, but like certainly like culturally, the, the feeling about it has changed. Right. And, and that's nice. And you're seeing people invest heavily in, in self-pub. You're also seeing the opposite. And this is only going to get worse with the AI content creators. Uh, a lot of people are making a lot of crap at scale. <laughs> I don't want to like throw names under the bus here, but there's like, there's a movement that's quite popular which is, I'll tell you the origin story of the movement, but I'm going to try to avoid like implying exactly who it is. <laughs> so there was an author who was like, huh, I make $7 a day from my, from my bad book, you know? And he's like, I don't know how to make a bad book better. And I don't know how to market a book, but I do know how to make lots of bad books. So how many would I need to make at $7 a day for this to be a full-time living? And, wow. and they basically like scaled that. And a lot of people like that because they don't want to take responsibility for making a good product, but they're happy to make lots of stuff. Um, and it's essentially like a spin on SEO arbitrage or AdWord arbitrage. But instead of arbitraging uh, Google search, you're arbitraging uh, Amazon search. And you get a trickle of traffic and it's kind of enough. And so they're making books like, like they're locking out keywords to try to get this trickle of, of traffic. And that really doesn't resonate with me. That's not how I would want to spend my time. Um, and I like to spend a couple of years on a book, right? And two years is a rush, like, cause you also need to learn things. You need to have enough life experiences to have an insight, to have a perspective. You need to spend enough time as you're writing it to talk to readers, to understand if it's going to work for people other than yourself. <laughs> I mean, like you, you've done this with all the writing in public stuff, right? You're like constantly hearing back from, from whether it works for readers and they're calling BS on it. I mean, you change your whole book title. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. can't do that stuff if you're trying to churn out five books a year. <laughs> and so like we're, we're trying to press back against that trend as well, where we're saying like, it's not about making a book as easily as possible or as quickly as possible or as painlessly as possible. It's about making your book as good as possible, you know, as, as long lasting as possible, as recommendable as possible. So yeah, there, there is like a groundswell here. Um, in some ways it's been helpful that there's so many like people making garbage because we've been able to pick a fight with them. And it's like, by like positioning ourselves against that, I actually think it's a more useful fight to pick than positioning ourselves against traditional publishing because we do get traditionally published authors. We have about 30% who are traditionally published, 70% who are self-published. Um, and we've got a couple in the community who have sold millions of books. Like some of the most successful authors in the world are, are like a part of it because they're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. They're not big participants in the community, but they like, you know, they use the software, they follow the process because they're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Um, 
I don't know. Again, kind of a rant. I guess I'm in a ranty mood today. <laughs> I think that's all right. But, I, I think the uh, honestly, the publishing industry, uh, there's probably no better industry to rant about, honestly, on, on many, many levels, right? Because what, we're looking what, what's at... What's your pet peeve, Arvid? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking at nonfiction here because that's that's kind of where, where most of the community that, that you're um, yeah, yeah. centering all of this around is. But the fiction has the same problem, right? Like the, the look at Kindle Unlimited and the, the kind of books that just get created to get thrown in there that are as long as possible possible because it's per page read that people get paid right <laughs> yeah. so you, you have these these weird incentives in the industry i think the the most recent episode of uh, seth godin's podcast is about launches like book launches that's the industry he's from and talks about like how there used to be this whole thing where you would launch the thing and you would try to print as many things as po- many books as possible to get them into bookstores so that shelves were full but then with the weird return policies that the bookstores had like they could just destroy the book and not have to pay for it like this so much weird legacy stuff going on in this industry that I'm glad that not only the tooling works because I, I th- you're right obviously KDP um, what was it called before like it, it had a had a different name but w- before it was called KDP on Amazon right CreateSpace yeah it, it, it existed before Amazon like made it KDP but the the perception of a self-published book being actually okay i think what twilight the book was self-published until it was picked up by a publisher too right and there are many people like stephanie meyer in in the publishing world that are creating really good books that don't have to be published even i i was uh, watching this 11 hour lecture by brandon sanderson <laughs> a guy like me who likes he's to be so verbose good. and yeah he's he's great <laughs> and the fact that he put his whole uh, byu lectures at, uh, at brigham young university on writing fiction or not right yeah writing sci-fi and fantasy i love that and he had an, an hour or two devoted to the publishing industry one hour to the regular publishing industry and one hour to the self-publishing industry and he actually had a couple of people who were self-published and making lots of money in that lecture I'm going to put it in the show notes here because it was so interesting. Talk about like how people are using, I'm trying to use the right word, or gaming the system of, you know, constantly publishing, writing whole, like the, not just trilogies, but quintilogies, octologies of books all at once and then trickling them in every week so that they have this this kind of graph of adoption. It just feels like people are always chasing these weird incentives in selling books or presenting books instead of just writing good books. It just makes me go crazy. Like the, the apparatus, the industry around it is just such a such an incentivized field where the incentive that I would like to see the most is suppressed, which is build a good creative work that encourages people mm. to do stuff better. Yeah, that's my rant. Yeah, so there we go. <laughs> I, I was watching, uh, I guess yesterday or today. I don't know. Like uh, Notion has kind of, you know, Notion the project management thing. They've added like GPT uh, text generation into their interface, like mm-hmm. this AI text expansion, text generation stuff. And the examples they gave were so soul churning. You know, it's like it's like what should my launch strategy be? And the AI is like right. 10 blog posts and it's like okay what should my first blog post be and the AI is like this is why blog for I don't know, whatever and yeah. I was like, oh man and when I think about that like one of my firm beliefs about 
books is that a book is not a pile of words. A book is, at least nonfiction, a book is like a self-contained solution to a problem for a particular type of person, right? Which requires insight. It requires empathy into the reader so that you understand their context. Like what's hard for one reader might be easy for another. Um, people have different objections, which is why it's helpful to niche down. Anyway, and I was reading this stuff and I'm like, man, it is so generic. And what there's got to be so many interesting implications here because you you got to take the you got to take it to the 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 infinite conclusion right which is that there will be an infinite number of books about every topic which are garbage and written by ai like why wouldn't there be there will also be an infinite number of websites about every topic which are you know as good as you could expect to get from like an intern or like a content creation hire who's just like doing the research and writing stuff up right and then you think about like google like does it make sense for Google to like, surely they got to change what they are, are highlighting, right? Does the whole industry of like SEO and content, you, you look at like the Twitter threads and people like summarizing best practice and stuff. Why would you ever do that when an AI can do it so much better and at infinite scale? And I, I've been trying to think like what, what survives, you know, and it's not being able to put down words. I, I think having a high word count in books and blog posts and articles used to be seen as a badge of honor because it signified that you did the work. Like it signified that you spent so many hours on the task thinking it through. And so that was like a proxy for insight or for something. Whereas now I, I think it's um, tinkers, like people who do stuff, tinkerers, uh, thinkers, like people who observe the world and have original ideas. Uh, and Teachers, like people who have enough empathy for a particular type of learner that they're able to give the same content in a way that resonates with that particular person. And to me, those feel more like AI proof and more of a, like, that's what people should be doing, right? And that when I think about myself, it's like, oh yeah, I try dumb stuff. I learn things from it. I build empathy for a particular type of person that lets me write to them, but it also lets me build software for them or build a community for them or whatever else. And like occasionally I have a new idea, not very often, mind you, but like every five, five years, I have an idea that seems worthwhile and I go, good okay, enough. that's a, you know, that's a good pace. <laughs> well, yeah, because like, honestly, you, even if it's just every five years, it's still better than an AI, which cannot have a new idea, right? It could recombine things into things that look novel, but I don't think there is emergence in AI, right? In, in, because the thing that summarizes everything will only ever have the knowledge of the things it summarizes, right? It won't be able to come up with a classification beyond the things that it already knows how to classify. I remember when I was studying at the university and philosophy, which is a great field to, to have like mental models and abstractions. And our professor talked about um, the, knowledge, the knowledge of the world and our job as academics in that context. And he described it as the, on, the world of knowledge is a sphere of everything combined within it. And you as an academic, you as a thinker, you go to the edge of the sphere and you put a tiny little additional sphere on top of it. Like, just imagine the world itself, the planet is the sphere of knowledge and you have a little ball that you put on top of that sphere. And if every academic, every thinker does that with their own little knowledge, the sphere grows in size over time in, in minuscule amounts, but it does grow. And that growth is the new original thought that every new person brings to it. And I don't think AI could ever leave the original sphere that it's been trained in. 
at least at this current stage, like GPT-3 or GPT-4, whatever it might be, there is no leaving the original sphere. They don't have the capacity to create this new little ball of knowledge and set it on top. Everything that AI does is contained in the AI itself. Is, is that something that makes sense to you? Or would you think that's actually a misconception here? So I, I think it, it can push outside, but like what's different is that like... I wouldn't expect that it could push outside in like a reliably credible way uh, yeah. for quite some time because so the art, for example, is really good at like abstract, like impressionist stuff, like amazingly good. And that was, I felt one of the first genres that it really nailed in like the visual arts was this, because you could look at this stuff and it's so dreamlike and the mistakes looked intentional, right? And it's like, it really does the, the modernist and like the postmodernist stuff super well. And I read someone's write up about AI writing and their their conclusion was that you got to expose your humanity. Like you got to, they, they did, they referenced that James Altucher quote about like bleeding on the first page or bleeding in the first line, like showing your weakness, showing your humanity. But that's like super formulaic and that like the AI will absolutely be able to do. Like you can easily make up a sad opening story to any article you want to grab people's attention, but that's just like emotional clickbait. So that answer didn't really resonate for me. Um, I much prefer like the observing new things as they're happening, empathizing with a particular group of people and speaking just to them and, and like doing stuff yourself experientially for the new knowledge. I think it will come up with lots of things that look like new knowledge or could be new knowledge or could be like extensions to right, But like in the same way that it can come up with abstract art where it's like, whoa, it's like crazy experimental. And you still need someone thoughtful to kind of look through all that junk and be like, oh, actually this one is, you know, this one resonates. And I mean, I guess people have done it with Wikipedia, right? Like maybe this is the way that we like crowdsource new ideas where everyone just like combs through all this like weird stuff um, that the AI is proposing. They they tried to do it for a, they tried to use AI to come up with a new sports game, like a new field team field game, you know? And they constrained it to be like, it's five players on each side. It happens on a whatever, something the size of a football pitch, et cetera. And they fed in all of the rules of like every game. And they were like, look, AI made this game and it's really fun and they played it. And But if you look through their methodology, what the AI actually did is it made like every possible plausible combination. And then they spent like 2000 man hours essentially like combing through them by hand to try to find the ones that were plausible and then playing them. Now then you go, okay, well, like could the AI simulate, get a model of fun and then simulate playing the games itself like it does with AlphaGo and blah, blah, blah. It's like, maybe, like who knows? Who knows where it's going to get to? But... I don't know. That feels a way out. I feel like we got to play the game that's in front of us. And right now I feel the game that's in front of us is that uh, if you're making Twitter threads summarizing best practices, you are out of a job. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. if you're writing these like summaries of business anecdotes from Steve Jobs's time doing whatever, it's like you are out of a job. If you're like scaling your business by writing lots of articles and you're hoping to catch search results, you are out of a job. Like that stuff is going to quickly stop working. And I think there's going to be a brief window where people it's like humans leveraging the AI to do AI powered like mass content spam, whether it's in the form of books or audio or blog posts or what tweets or whatever. Um, and I think that some people will build a really big audience by doing that and potentially make a bunch of money uh, and that they'll sell a bunch of courses because a lot of people will want to emulate them because it seems like an easy path. But to me, that seems the same as the AdWord arbitrage that happened a couple decades ago, where some people got really rich 
arbitraging AdWords. But it was essentially a zero value way for them to spend their time. They weren't creating value in the world. They were just taking it, right? It was just, you know, they're just taking a tax um, off this like inefficiency and fine, someone's going to do it. It may as well be them. It doesn't really matter. But it doesn't feel like an aspirational way to spend one's time to me. Like, I can't imagine a craftsperson being like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Uh, <laughs> so just like skip past that and go back to the, I, I don't know. I'm actually, I, I paused my newsletter this week. I've been sending a newsletter to, to um, one of my, my like personal community. It's a community about communities. But I paused it for the reason that the, this whole thing has thrown me for a loop where I kind of feel like... Um, frequency is going to get commoditized and word count is commoditized. And I kind of feel like I need to go in the opposite direction where I go slower and deeper. And, you know, cause I feel like everyone and their dog is just going to be sending more stuff as it gets easier and easier. And I don't want to do that. I want to play the opposite game, but we'll see. I'm sure that's suboptimal. <laughs> well, you will see, right? That's the thing. And and I, I think that, that long-term thinking, that's the point. I, I feel all these things you just described that are going to put people out of their jobs are short-term wins, are things that are not going to be around for long because they are being abused by the people who are using them, right? And then this abuse will kind of cause regulation to happen for things to kind of quiet down or just uh, the people's uh, active ignorance of that thing will cause it to be less effective just like spam emails and stuff you know spam folders and spam it, it, detection right exactly like we we recognize clickbait now we recognize spam emails and so that stuff doesn't work at, like it works briefly at scale but then it stops and i guess it still works on a certain like subset of the population which i guess is enough to fuel the business model so sure you, you can probably use like ai written text to build a really big audience of stupid people who like want to read AI generated text, but like, are those the customers you really want to serve? Are they a desirable and profitable customer segment? I don't know. I could see it in fiction. That's the thing. In nonfiction, it doesn't make sense mm. because there really is no instructive quality or no no kind of genuine connection combined with instructive quality to mm. AI written stuff. I, it, it doesn't have this personal touch. When I write something, it, it, I'm. I want it to sound like me because that's how I sound and that's how I want to communicate. When I let an AI do this, it's hard for the AI to kind of pick up my style and the way I would explain a certain thing, right? Have you seen what's happening in the art world where you can feed in 10 or 20 uh, photos or drawings by someone in, mm -hmm. in their style and then go like, all right, give it to me in this style. I don't see any reason you couldn't do that for, for text as well. Um, just the, the interface isn't there quite yet, but it, it will be soon. And you can be like, like I was, I was thinking, like I was thinking, it would be really funny when, when it's possible. I'd love to see some of my blog posts like rewritten in the style of Hunter S. Thompson, like aggressive, angry, Gonzo, drug fueled like style on, on like my knowledge. And I think it could be really fun, right? And you can imagine people reading, like just like you can look at websites and you can kind of control the font size. You could be like, all right, I want to read this guy's blog post, but like you know, an angry lunatic, or like uh, you know, like in three sentences. I was running some of my writing through um, a little like AI condenser called summary to try to see what, how the AI would compress it. Cause I was trying to see is like, I was trying to find wasted, like, you know, wasted, whatever verbiage or phrases or wasted bits in my message. And I was actually really happy because I, I compressed it at a bunch of different levels to the AI. And I felt like even at the lightest compression levels of reducing the text, I felt like something important that I had tried to say was missing from the compression. So I was like, okay, that's a good sign that, that like I'm, I'm packing like value into the words. Like each sentence has, is carry, it's doing a job. Um, 
Anyway, it's fascinating times, though. I'm, like, really keen, but, man, I'm not looking forward to the spam. I feel like I'm going to have to unfollow literally everyone on Twitter if, if this stuff goes mainstream because I just can't put up with reading more crap written by, like, garbage machines summarizing, like, stuff. Like, tell me what you learned. Tell me your thing. Don't tell me what you read in someone else's book. Yeah, <laughs> like, tell me your experiential insights, right? It's, it's probably going to come to a point where we have, like, content-aware, like, ad blockers or, or spam blockers mm. that that see a summary and block it <laughs> it's you yeah know, we've seen this before or yeah it's it's weird that we have to invent tooling to fight uh, the capacity of technology that is being enabled by the by other <laughs> tools it's just it's just really sad but i, I one thing i want to say about this whole um yeah different voices for the same content actually i quite enjoy that because that just kind of blows my mind in a certain way to be able to read something in a tone of voice or in a style that works well for you that's just what education should be right i was i was having a conversation recently about like education and this kind of frontal school education teacher stands in front of 30 kids and teaches them the exact same way where every single child has a different way of learning obviously that's how people are right so having a way to consume knowledge in a in a, in a, a way that makes it more compatible with you that is amazing that's a wonderful idea and if ai tooling could help with that great but and that's i think the big difference here the underlying information that this ai changes that has to come from somewhere Right? And that cannot be auto-generated out of something randomly. This has to be intentionally put there. However colored it comes out of, in, in, in your in unique personal perception, the, the knowledge itself, that has to be stable and well-structured, which I really love the idea with summarizing your own stuff and seeing what's missing. Because if you can, uh, if you can summarize it and nothing's missing, then obviously you are way too verbose, right? And you can condense it even better for people to pick it up more quickly. That's actually great. And it kind of brings me to a point. Like I do like AI enabling or AI powered tools for writing. I, I, I like Grammarly to check for like basic grammar stuff. I like Summarize and I, I like, um, what is it, Quillbot for like certain rephrasing things when I don't have a better idea. I mean, I could go to a, a synonym page or somewhere, find different words, use it myself. But if the, the thing can do it by itself for me to give me alternatives, wonderful. These tools are great. But the tools are just tools. The structure of the thought has to be within me. Like, right? Yeah. When... um. Like I did a while, like my second book was called The Workshop Survival Guide, which is about education design. And the, the big like concept of that book, like the core idea is don't start with the slides, start with a skeleton of learning outcomes. You know, well, well, really you start with the audience profile. You're like, where are they at when they arrive and where do they need to be when they leave? So like, what's the diff? What's different about what they can do and understand between the time they arrived and left? Then you go, okay, what like learning outcomes do they need? And what's like supporting learning outcomes, blah, blah, blah. And then you start thinking energy levels, timings, breaks, et cetera. And then the last thing you do is you make the slides. And what everyone does when they, they first approach it is they do the opposite because the slides are the most visual. So they start with the slides and the words, and then they get really stuck, right? Because they they aren't clear on their own message or the structure of that message. They're like, and it, it's way slower to move the word, the slides around than it is to move like a list of learning outcomes around. And the same is true with writing books. It's like, I'm a big believer in like, start with the table of contents, teach it before you've written it. Cause it's way easier to iterate on a table of contents than it is to iterate on a 50,000 word manuscript or whatever. And it would be really cool if there was a, like, 
this is just playing off what you said, but if there was a standardized format of like, this is the knowledge structure under, and then this is the pros. So this is the skeleton and this is the skin. Mm-hmm. So like the, the, the knowledge structure, the learning outcomes and the, you know, and then that could be reskinned in different voices. It could be embellished. It could, you can imagine an AI being like, oh, I'm looking for an example of, of when focus can backfire. And you can imagine the AI being like, oh, this person really likes Napoleon. Let me go get a Napoleon anecdote to yeah. illustrate this point. And then boom, you've got Ryan Holiday in a box, right? Or Robert Greene or any of these authors. Like, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could imagine that those stories being swapped out. Now, their voice is in their selection of stories, right? They, like, find a consistent set. And you can argue that's, like, a, the interesting value of a good DJ on a radio station. Mm-hmm. is like they've chosen an interesting set of selections. They kind of build toward a whole. Fine, whatever. But it you would want like a craftsperson. I was trying to play. I was like, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm actually halfway through writing a post. It's called a, like the, the, the writer is dead. Like the writing is dead, you know? And it was like, what are the jobs that replace writing? Cause if putting down words have been commoditized, it's not about writing. It's about like, is it knowledge creation? Is it curriculum development? Is it uh, like empathy and teaching? Is it, and I, there's probably some really interesting uh, business models there where you're like, we create the core curriculum to teach kids of this age with like this socioeconomic background. And it's like, or like we create like the underlying knowledge skeleton for this topic. And then you can skin it up however you want by hand with AI, whatever. Um, I don't know. And then when people are refining it, they could be, you, you could separate the structure from the, you know. Yeah, there could be a whole other job. Like you could be a, like a knowledge transformer. <laughs> that could be a, an actual profession for a particular industry. And also that would kind of give people who have this, this particular niche expertise in that particular field an opportunity to translate knowledge from another field right into their field, which is kind of lifting uh, the tide, lifting all the boats at the same time. If you spread it out. It would be cool too. You can imagine keeping like the core knowledge tree and like source control and then essentially branching it. So like, let's say there was a really well-developed like tree of startup fundraising knowledge um, without all the superficial blah, blah, blah that people put on with the WordCraft, but just like the core knowledge. And then you could imagine branching that and it was like, okay, this is nonprofit grant writing or like grant raising. And this is like academic proposal writing. And you could imagine like, I don't know, there, there could be cool stuff. I'm like way too pie in the sky right now, but. Well, why not? I mean, you, you can be wherever you want to be, right? That's that's the wonderful thing about having all this agency, both in your own business and your own life. If you can just like dream about this for a couple hours, why not? Uh, I, I love the idea. I love the idea of abstracting knowledge away from its uh, prose form, because I think as, as much as humanity has thrived and grown on the written word, it, we, we are at this kind of point where there there is definitely a, a move forward towards a different structure. Funny enough, probably a structure that we ourselves as humans will have a hard time to comprehend because we experience the world through words, through sentence-based thinking at least that's the, the way we communicate right if in this kind of stream of stream of words um i've always been a big sci-fi fan and thinking about like how the, even the co- concept of telepathy of thought transfer would change the way we think not just the way we communicate which is a whole thing right like if you watch star trek and something you still have these audio representation of telepathy where people kind of talk in each other's minds right. but <laughs> if, if you if you look at thoughts in your mind while you think them yourself they're, they're not audible not necessarily right they, they are constructs that you have and then you kind of take parts of it and you communicate them in in this kind of word by word structure 
that will change if we have a brain-computer interface that can take a snapshot of the thought, not just an expression in words, but the actual structure. The kind of mind-blowing stuff because it's it's unimaginable at this point, I feel, but uh, definitely an interesting field of research. So when is that product coming out? When is, uh, when, when is your business building that particular product? <laughs> well... <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> like so, I think the test bed for that is because I've been trying to figure out my own blog posts and my own, um, like my own newsletters and my own content and stuff, right? And right now, I'm in the process of doing an update to write useful books. I'm doing the the one point one update, and it started, and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna fix a couple like factual errors and typos that slipped in. But as I go, I'm I'm now like a month into the update, and it, it's turning into a much bigger project, which I'm actually excited about because it's fun. But while doing that, I'm like, okay, I've added a bunch of like, I've expanded the page size. <laughs> this gets back to your question, I promise. This is just a meandering route there. So I've expanded the page size. Um, so there's way bigger margins. And then I'm filling those margins with like a ton of stuff, right? Like like the quotes and tidbits and behind the scenes and like tactical tips and all of that. Or at least this is the plan. We'll see if I get there in print. But then I'm like, wait, that only works in print. How does that translate to the audiobook? How does that translate to the Kindle version? It doesn't like you can't inline all these things. You break your reader experience. You can't like narrate them. I, I heard of an audiobook where for the footnotes, they just narrated them. And like the dude did a different voice for footnotes. And apparently it was just like absurd because <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> you know? he kept like switching to this like fake, fake voice. But and, and then I'm thinking like, wow, like the formats are already diverging. Right. And I'm in the process of um, I've decided to give all of my books away for free forever on the Web as like Web versions. And then I'm like, well, if it's a web version of the mom test or the workshop survival guide, you can bet there's going to be audio of me delivering these like conversation techniques or facilitation techniques, right? Because why wouldn't you if it's a web version? And then I'm like, well, that's already different than the other versions then. And like, so it's like, I I feel like the idea of a book is already fragmenting because we had a decade or two where the paperback, the Kindle, the audiobook, and the web version were identical, right? And I feel like that's starting to fragment. And you've got uh, publishers like Holloway, who their whole thesis is to double down on the web version with a bunch of digital value ads that you can't do in other formats and then charge a premium for it. And it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. And so then when I think about, when I think about something like this, it's very like media, medium in the like hand wavy, you know, head in the cloud sort of stuff. It's like, you got to try it. I remember reading a really cool, uh, call it a web book, from someone and it started as a, I wish I could remember the source, I don't, but it started as a single sentence, right? It's like, uh, let's, I'm making this up, but let's say it's like uh, selling is about asking good questions, right? So you go, fine. And then each of those words was clickable and would expand into like a clause and the clauses were like the sentences within that. And essentially you realize that he had an entire book that like was was structured as a tree which collapsed down to a single sentence wow and like each word could be expanded out and expanded out and expanded out so cool and you know on the one hand that's just like a fancy visualization over linking and hypertext but on the other hand there, there's something different about it right because like it is the the knowledge hierarchy so i can imagine playing with something like that or different formats of that with 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 my own writing with my blog post with this and that and you know, eventually it's like you do it for yourself, bespoke for a while. And if people like it, they ask you what the tool is and you go, oh, it isn't really a tool. You know, you, you eventually make the tool for yourself. You expose it to a few other people. Um, you know, it feels like that sort of product where it's not solving an explicit problem, like problem that you can kind of validate in a, in a clear cut way. 
And it's much more like, does it feel good to use? Do people like to use it? And this is how stuff like Roam and can the digital Kanban boards like Trello and stuff like that, that that's how they got started. So I'd imagine this is a in that that like product category or problem category where you kind of just need to tinker and see how it feels and play with it. Because um, it's also possible I've sometimes learned that these things sound amazing in theory and then you try them and then you're like, that is fun once or that works really well for one type of content, but it does not like it does not scale to other types of contents and it's never going to get widespread or it's just way too much work to create. So it's not worth it, even if it is technically better. There's all these things that you don't figure out ahead of time. Yeah, kind of kind of reminds me of what you said earlier, people like building businesses that then confine the actual capacity that mm. people have, right? If you build a SaaS that doesn't fit in somebody's workflow because it designs a completely <laughs> new workflow for them, they're not going to use it. Just the same as if you t take a book in a shape that people can't use because they want it to actually have physical a physical version of it and you don't offer that because it's all hyperlinked and stuff which is great but you know doesn't really translate then you don't have readers for that book and that's kind of what an author wants right is what is their knowledge <laughs> disseminated distributed and consumed i mean any product creator right it's like it's like you're opinionated but you also got to be open to the realities of the world and i don't know and it's, it's transitionary. It's hard. It's it's like it's likely a transitionary thing. Like there will be experiments like this. I think I've seen people build these hyperlink books and particular uh, with with special media parts, and then they compile down to an EPUB without the media parts, but with links to the platform that exists. It's just complicated to use, and that usually in a market of mass distribution, right, or at least like high distribution of the same product to to different people. UX is a factor and you kind of want to make sure that the thing you offer is usable. But I, I still love this little excursion into what knowledge structure could be and how we could turn it into, into books because I love books. I love reading. Maybe these are two very distinct things or will be even more distinct in the future. I think the consumption of knowledge will not be reading books alone. It will be ebooks with other things attached. And I, I love the, the idea that um, all of this is kind of culminating in the community that you currently have, where you see people struggling with making these things happen. And maybe that's the, one of the, the things that I, I want to talk to you about while we close off this uh, conversation here. The community that you have, you you are uh, an integral part of it, right? You're a, a per, the person leading the community. You're doing events in the community. And I, I heard you say earlier that you like to go from thing to thing. You have a wandering attention. How does that work together? Because a community is something you need to constantly maintain and constantly yeah. like move forward. How, how do you keep yourself accountable in this accountability community? So the... I've got two communities, which is possibly a bad decision, but they're the, they're different stages. So one is the, the, the useful authors community off of usefulbooks.com. And another is a community about outcome oriented communities, which is this like category of community I'm trying to figure out or define or whatever, which is off of robfitz.com. And there are very different stages. So the, um, you can think about like, is the community kind of at a stable point? So, okay, I've got these dumb stages. So my first stage for community design, I call it the content and concierge stage. So you're doing a lot of concierge service. There's not enough other people to be helping each other. The cultural values aren't instilled in the members. So the founder, the creator is very important, right? Because you're, you're like making the connections, you're inviting people into the conversation, you're creating content as if it was a campfire for your other members to gather around and have something to talk about and, and like to bring them together in these pockets of critical mass. Um, 
that's where the outcome oriented community is. So if I stop doing stuff, that community dies. And I'm like very much on the hook for like stimulating activity each week. Um, then the authors community where it's a couple hundred members is at what I call the second stage, which is simple, stable system where we don't have all the fancy automations. We don't have all the fancy personalizations, but it runs like people know what they're doing there. They know what the roadmap is. They, they know where they're trying to get to. They know what the proximate goals are. They can measure where they're at against that and understand like, okay, they can kind of self debug. There's enough members who have been there for long enough that the culture is kind of, you know, instilled. We, we know in like Seth Godin's word is like community is knowing people like us do things like this. Like that's like instilled. It's like authors like us beta read authors like us, put it out there before we're ready. Like authors like us iterate, like authors like us aren't trying to get it done fast. We're trying to get it done. Right. It's like that. That's like pretty instilled in the culture. Um, and so they feel totally different to run. Like when I go on paternity leave in a couple months, the author's community will run without me just fine. Like already we've got four weekly writing accountability groups and I only run one of them. So we've already moved 75% of them to other people. Wow. Um, the newsletter, we've got like a really clear style guide and structure, which is like intentionally a neutral journalistic style. Sometimes I write it, but sometimes other team members write it. And it doesn't matter because it's like all figured out in the style guide. It's like we refer to people in this way. We like use this tense of verbs. Like we, we celebrate these category of things. We don't celebrate these. Like we have a bunch of examples of like, this does not belong in the newsletter, mm -hmm. even though it looks like it should for these reasons. So there's like that style guide is really well defined. Um, and, and it runs like, like we know what that community is, right? Like now, if there's a big name author coming in for a guest interview, yeah, I probably need to do that myself. But the... Probably not forever though. Like already we're going to start, like I'm going to bring in a co-host yeah. and then eventually that's like steps toward them being the host. So that was like working. And then the, the final like stage, the third stage of the community is like the flywheels, the growth, the fancy systems, the, you know, whatever, like integrating it into a more fancy business model, which we have parts of anyway. The, so that's why it's different. I am pretty concerned about the outcome oriented community community when I go on paternity leave because it does not run without me. And the, the kind of like, there's a couple really motivated members who really care and are really involved. Um, it's a paid community. I don't know. Like I thought like if things go really well in the next couple months, then maybe I kind of like promote them mm -hmm. to be like community volunteers or managers and or something and they run it and fine. I've thought that maybe I tell everyone that I'm leaving in two months or however long, I guess it's a little longer than that. And that I'm pausing their payments and I'll be back in three months or six months after that. And if they want to stick around, they're welcome. And if I show back up and no one's there, that's fine too. Yeah. Like I thought about saying like, this was great. Like I can't run it anymore. I'm sorry. I thought I could get it stable before I left, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it to backslide and to waste your time and become spammy. So I'm just going to close it down instead. Um, and then refund a couple months. Uh, Cause ultimately like, I don't know how to build the outcome oriented communities, right? Like the point of this community was for us to explore this idea together. So it was meant to be collective knowledge discovery. And as for the other part of your question is like, how do I stay excited? Even though I tend to drift, the reason I stay excited is it's because I'm not building these communities cynically. I'm building the communities that I want to be a part of. It's yeah. so like, I am trying to figure out community. So it's not that much of a chore for me to join the outcome oriented community and read what people are saying and contribute nice. my thoughts. Kind of dog feeding your like, own I, community. I write, 
Yeah, like I write books every morning, you know, and sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's discouraging. Sometimes it feels like you're going backwards. Like, I know what that's like. And it's nice to be able to ask people for another perspective. So it's like, okay, that makes the author's community kind of fine. Like, so that's how they fit into my lives. That's how I stay interested in them. There was no way I would be able to stay motivated to run an arbitrary community just because I thought it would make money. Like, that would be impossible for me. I don't have that sort of consistency and follow through. I have to be intrinsically interested. And already, honestly, two is a lot. Two plus a business, plus like not wanting to work that hard. It's like, <laughs> like plus trying to write my own books. It's like a little bit too much, you know, but I, I really don't want to give up any of them. Well, I can feel your passion and the, the purpose that you, you seem to feel from uh, <laughs> running and being part of these communities. And I, I really appreciate that because I think you're doing great stuff there. Like both for the author community, obviously creating this platform for people to be a platform for knowledge. It's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. And a community that is concerned with building better community, like could, couldn't be any better, right? That is just a wonderful <laughs> thing. So thank you so much for, for doing this. I, I think that that is just, uh, I, I benefit a lot from reading about these things. I frequent your website a lot and I read your, your posts that you put in there. It's just always quite insightful, always very different angles and very different things that all kind of come together and create something that is bigger than the sum of its parts, which is, I guess, the point of a community. So um, thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing this in public, too, and sharing all your knowledge, both there and on your YouTube and wherever. So where do you want people to find you? Uh, if you care about writing books, it's uh, usefulbooks.com. If you are just curious about me or the community stuff, it's robfitz.com. It's either usefulbooks.com or robfitz.com. And, you know, it'd be fun to see you there if you're interested. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for being on. That was a wonderful conversation. We went far out and right back <laughs> to back to earth. So thank you so much. Uh, that, that was amazing. My great pleasure. Always great to talk to you, Arvid. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Woodstock Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me on the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will help the show. So thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.